are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This week's episodes are part one and part two of a conversation with Anant Ahuja and Gauri Sharma of Shahi Exports, one of India's largest garment manufacturers. Shahi's origin story is quite the tale. And rather than butcher it, we're going to let them tell you about it themselves. We get into how, why and when Shahi Exports started taking on more and more of the production processes, from spinning yarn to making fabric to cutting and sewing garments for export, to logistics and design. What does this mean for where they see Shahi's future? Will they start selling direct to consumers someday too? This takes us into some familiar territory, supplier leadership within the sustainability agenda. It's a topic we also covered in episodes 14 and 15 when we chatted to Ariel Muller and Martin Sue. Anant and Gauri share what they perceive to be the barriers to suppliers taking a leadership role within sustainability and how they tackled this within Shahi. The result? Some pretty innovative social initiatives with a pretty attractive return on investment. And for a disclaimer, a business case for responsible business doesn't replace the need for political action on political problems like a highly unequal distribution of wealth across supply chains. But it's not an either-or situation and system change is all about action on multiple levels happening at the same time. In part two of the conversation, which we're also releasing today, we turn to Shahi's relationship with its raw material suppliers, primarily cotton farmers. So be sure to check that out as well. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. My name's Anant, and I'm uh, the head of organizational development at a company called Shahi, Shahi Exports. Um, Shahi is a, a business that was started in, in 1974 by my grandmother. And essentially, um, what started as a small home-based operation is now uh, one of the largest garment manufacturing firms based here in India. Uh, we have uh, over 50 factories across the country, there's uh, over 100,000 workers spread across these factories. And there's also three textile mills associated with Shahi. So you're really doing everything in, in a sense. You're doing the spinning. You're doing the cut and the weaving or knitting. Yeah. And then the cut and sew. Yeah. So everything except growing cotton. And we don't do ginning. But aside from that, everything you mentioned. And um, how about you, Gori? What was your entry point into Shahi and what's your role at Shahi? So I work with uh, Anant in the organizational development team at Shahi. And what the organizational de development team does, uh, in essence, is that it's uh, kind of like a change management consultancy within Shahi. 
Uh, we have uh, we have people f- who are at the factory level, um, at the management level, and also at the board level. Um, so we have uh, people in all aspects of Shahi um, looking after worker well-being, uh, trainings for workers, skill development, training and development of staff, um, and even sustainability-related communications and partnerships. Uh, we work closely with um, other departments at Shahi, including compliance and environment, uh, HR, um, and anyone really who wants to work with us to create positive change within the business. So I sit within the sustainability communications and partnerships department within organizational development. Can you go, Can you paint us a picture? I mean, give us a sense of... Uh, the types of products that Shahi makes, the scale, how many people you work with, where in India you are. I mean, I, I read somewhere that you're in seven different states. Yeah, totally. So I guess to take one step back and share a bit more background, um, the the beginnings of Shahi, like I was saying, it, it was a home-based operation. My grandmother was a... a, a a worker in a factory before that, she, you know, uh, wanted to earn some extra income. So she joined this local factory. Then uh, she found it kind of challenging to manage her um, day-to-day sort of responsibilities at home as well as her job. So she left that job and the owner said, hey, why don't you complete some of these orders from home? And that turned into kind of almost a subcontracting sort of operation setup. Mm. Um which it's really interesting to see how something that small could evolve into uh, such a large operation today. Um, and in terms of painting a picture, uh, you know, there's, like I was saying, 50 factories. Um, we're mostly concentrated in a state in the south of India called Karnataka. Uh, Bangalore is where um, a lot of our factories uh, were traditionally being set up, but more and more um, we're moving outside of the city uh, you know, more to, towards rural parts of the country. And if you enter one of our factories, what you'll see is a lot of workers. So on average, maybe 2,000 workers per factory. Um, most of them are women. So around 70% of them are women. Um, and the products w- were essentially structured as three divisions. So there's uh, two divisions that do woven products and um, one that does knits and you can see everything from dresses to t-shirts to shirts, um, jeans, uh, mostly cotton based garments. We don't do as much synthetic stuff except on the, um, you know, ladies fashion side, but, um, yeah, you know, it's a pretty diverse product range, uh, and, obviously huge quantities um, in terms of the overall output. When your grandmother started in 1974, what kind of customers were the clothes that she was producing for going to at that time? Because I imagine that it's evolved a lot over the last 50, is it 50 Almost, years? yeah. Yeah, <laughs> almost. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that much about this. I mean... From my sort of vague understanding, they it's not customers like what we have today. It's not the major brands and retailers. I think in the 70s, there was a lot fewer companies like that anyways. 
but essentially, um, you know, there was long chains. So there was many middlemen, traders, uh, importers, exporters. So we were making goods based on, um, you know, the local factory that she had previously been employed at based on their requirements. And a lot of them were being exported even then, but it was mostly for Mm -hmm. smaller shops, uh, maybe, you know, um, I don't think any major retailers, of course, but uh, less branded kind of goods and more um, general kind of stuff. I, you know, I, it's a good question. I should actually know more about this, but I think it's like a distant memory at this point for everyone. Yeah, that's okay. I, I The reason I ask is just because... I'm I'm always interested in where we start the story because I think often like that's where we start the story is, oh, production used to be in one part of the world and now it moved elsewhere. But in some countries, and I think particularly in India, there there's a long history of the textile industry way before that that so- totally gets left out of the picture. So, so that's where that question was yeah, coming from. Yeah, it's a good point. I think that large-scale industrial production uh, you could probably make that generalization about. But you're right, there's a long history and tradition of textile production of garments here in India. And, um, you know, I think it just so happened that our, you know, business from the start was more geared towards exports. But there's definitely a huge domestic market. There's definitely, you know, all kinds of different garments that have from, you know, even before uh, this this sort of trend to shift uh, supply chains um, offshore, I think, you know, like you said, there was a lot of activity happening in a place like India. So I want to talk to you in a little bit more detail about you started out, Shahi started out producing, doing this, the cutting or maybe even just the sewing, I don't know, effectively as a subcontractor in the 70s for another factory. Can you take us through the the trajectory? How, you know, at what point did you start to take on different parts of the production process as a company and what was sort of the rationale or the thinking behind that? Uh, so when we started, it was just, you know, kind of uh, sewing. It was, I wouldn't even call it a factory. It was just a workshop. And even the, you know, the other factory where we were getting orders from was a smaller workshop it wasn't like a factory in the way we think about it today um but from there so my dad joined the business right out of college and i think um you know as my uncle joined and it became more family members the three of them really you know running things uh there was opportunities to grow um at at that time even you know up until the 90s there was quotas in terms of how much export a business could do and that really determined, um, to some extent, how much growth you could experience. Uh, and once the market sort of the economy kind of opened up after uh, later in the 90s, that created a lot of opportunity to gain access to markets abroad. And um, my uncle, he moved to New York and he was essentially handling the import side of the business. So nowadays you don't really need that as much. It's easier to go direct, export directly to customers. 
but back then there was so much you know administrative work so much uh so many challenges that he would essentially be the one importing goods that were being made here in 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 a factory we had um so you know when the time was right we were able to set up a smaller factory that was actually a proper licensed unit and that was shipping goods to my uncle in New York who would import them and then distribute them to the uh buyers that you know they would meet through trade shows and different events um and from there you know Shahi continued to grow at a very incremental pace i would say in the 2000s is when you know we started to experience much more growth um and become you know one of the larger manufacturers and then possibly you know since 2007 onwards uh i think shahi has kind of remained uh at the top in terms of garment manufacturing firms in india so there's always been uh a, a gradual pace but more recently with the structure um it's 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 a family owned business but it's it's the intention is to run it as professionally as possible so there's you know ceos handling different divisions um there's a entire kind of you know group of uh executives who who are involved in in the day-to-day operations and i think that decentralized structure that gave ownership to you know all these different people has allowed shahi to professionalize in a way where you know we're working with the top brands and retailers globally um you know and and have the scale that we do it's really interesting to hear the history and to hear you say that you know you used to have that your uncle used to be based in the US or was based in the US because that you needed somebody in the US on the importing side and that now that's no longer needed i don't know i didn't expect that somehow <laughs> well l- let me let me say well my reaction to that is basically the way i see it and you know i do have limited visibility um a lot of this stuff was before i was born so can't really speak on it but essentially um you know as i was mentioning through the 90s there was this sort of challenge of, of quotas and having to work with importers and then once we moved past that then there was a lot of buying houses so you would you know a company like shahi at the scale that we were operating at we would work with some of the buying houses locally who would then be the liaisons for brands abroad and now there's a big there's been a big shift to this direct model where i mean the companies are much bigger but we are directly interacting with our customers in a way that you know mm. we re- in the recent history weren't but maybe if you go back far enough we were i have to say it's like the brands extended or outsourced more functions even to the production based country so you have buying house in the production country and you have forwarder services provide uh, provide that in the production country and more and more with another trend i notice is it, as if some manufacturers who have skills to do that they also take over those services i think shahi export will take care of like as the name indicates takes care of the export too so producing and export directly to that uh, to that market country that's very interesting yeah. yeah i mean we have a huge logistics team and that's a big part of their job but what what you just said that made me think about how 
with some of our customers, we are exploring ways to handle logistics in their countries as well. So in the U.S., um, mm -hmm. whether it's inventory management um, or logistics of the goods as they arrive there. I think, you know, although we're not doing this yet, I know there are models where manufacturers would even be given a certain space in a store and said, you guys are responsible for, you know, deciding what goods go here, how they sell. And really? So I don't think it's as common in the garment industry, but I've heard of it, you know, um, in other sectors. But I don't see why it couldn't be possible, even in, in our case with some of some of the customers we work with. So that that sounds really like um, many garment manufacturers are shifting from a simple product producer to not just the product producer, but also service provider. Because now providing Definitely. logistic service and even inventory management service and even maybe already happening somewhere like store display. Definitely. I mean, that's one way to increase your margin for sure, but also... I think the other thought is like, if you're a cut to sew manufacturer, um, there's so many there's so many suppliers out there, and if there's going to be this constant pressure on price, you know it's very easy to get replaced. But when you add value in these ways, then you can create a stronger kind of you know reliance um, on your business. I have to ask because like when I hear this, it's like. Okay, so if you're you're not doing the farming, but you're doing the spinning, you're then making the fabric, you're then cutting and sewing the fabric, you're taking care of getting the finished good then to wherever it's going to be sold. And then maybe in the future, even taking care of actually putting it in the retail shop. So why not why not just be a brand then? You know? Yeah. Um you're right. Why not? I don't know. <laughs> we also um, design the clothes. Uh, we that's try true. as a team of over 100 yeah. designers. Yeah, that's true. I think realistically, like um, when you think about brands more and more, you realize like, first of all, they're the ones who need to predict um, what the demand will be. They need to predict the trends. They need to be very close to the consumers and they need to continue to build their brand value. I'm curious. We were talking to somebody yesterday, actually, who said, you know, the whole way the business does forecasting is going to change. Um, right now, it's mostly based on uh, regression models. So looking backwards and looking at historical sales data. And in the future, we're going to move to predictive analytics. Thing, you know, data that's coming from social media and things like that. It won't be based on an analysis of what people bought yesterday or last week or last year. It's going to be predictive. And then when I hear you describe that, if what brands are really bringing to the table in this picture is understanding of consumer behavior, you know, as data and for forecasting techniques change, then how do these roles change along alongside that? In one world, you could imagine that a lot of the brands we know and, and wear um, and consume today could become tech companies, essentially, um, if that's what they're doing. But I think, yeah, I don't mean to like reduce the scope of what all it sounds like, you know, these brands are doing, because mm. obviously marketing itself is not an easy task. You know, it's, no. I mentioned yeah. that there's like so many suppliers, but there's also so many brands. Uh, you look at a company like H&M, 
they're one of the largest brands and retailers globally. And they're like, as far as I understand, less than 1% of the overall, uh, you know, garments out there in the world. So when you... Oh, really? I, I didn't I, know that. I, I mean, someone should look that up and, and confirm, but, okay. but from what I understand, they are actually, you know, in the single digits or even less of the overall like total garments in the world. And so, you know, the, it's very competitive for them as well. And we did fact check this and we found that the top 10 companies in the fashion sector represent 10% of the global market share. And this article says that H&M specifically went from 0.9% of the global market share in 2008 to 1.4% of the global market share in 2017. The article we've just cited is from the Global Fashion Business Journal, an article that came out in December 2019. And we'll put the link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because and go back to you, Gori, what and um, because when you when you introduced yourself, you started to talk about how Shahi is trying to take a leadership role in the sustainability agenda. And I want to get into that. But I wonder if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your own sort of personal journey in terms of feeling like this was suppliers taking a leadership role in shaping the sustainability agenda was something that was important and worthwhile. I was always conflicted and I think still I am sometimes because on the one hand you want to change the system, but then I do feel like you need to be part of the system to change the, change the system. So a lot of people don't understand why I work at a manufacturer if I'm so aware of all the challenges in the industry. But for me, it's really important that um, you learn about how clothes are made, where they're made and understand the root causes of these problems from the ground to be able to kind of solve them or even attempt to solve them. So when I came to Shahi for the first time, I still remember when I walked into the factory for the first time, like my jaw dropped because I couldn't believe that there were so many people involved in making clothes. And I think a lot of people experienced that. We did a factory tour for some people who had never seen a, like few of them had never seen a factory before. And everyone unanimously has the same kind of reaction where you see thousands and thousands of people like, the the t-shirt being passed on every table thousands of people like working on the fabric even inspecting the fabric to dyeing to you know washing all of that and why supplier leadership in particular because there are a lot of people sort of quote unquote within the system who are working to change it but why do you think suppliers should take a leadership role in the sustainability agenda in particular yeah, I, that's a really good question. And uh, I've done a bit of research on this. So I recently finished my master's um, and I did my dissertation on buyer-supplier relationship, uh, especially if the fashion industry has to transition to circular economy, what role can suppliers play? And I did interview brands, suppliers and experts. And what I kind of found is on the one side, you know, people do feel within the industry that, suppliers should take more leadership they're not proactive um it's very brand driven everything that happens whether it's compliance or sustainability or you know how um women's advancement program should run in a factory everything is really driven from the brands and suppliers need to take more ownership on the other hand i saw that even working at shahi that there are 
suppliers who are taking the lead on a lot of sustainability programs. So there are great things being done by suppliers. It's just that they don't market all these things that they do as well as brands do. They don't talk about it as much because it's very much driven by at times just their own vision or just their own, you know, whether it's the family or the management. So on the one hand, there's this perception that suppliers are the root cause of all the problems and they need to change. And on the other hand, um, suppliers do feel, um, at least this is what I found in my research, that sometimes the incentives are not stacked, uh, like stacked in favor of taking that proactive step because they feel that there's still a lot of power that rests with buyers. So even if they are proactive, let's say they come up with the most innovative technology, they pilot it, or they come up with really interesting programs um, for their workers, it's still entirely possible that a buyer could, um, you know, uh, squeeze them on their margins year on year or not be willing to give any kind of long-term commitment. So at times we find that on the one side, um, the buyer sourcing team is pressurizing suppliers for uh, reducing their prices. And on the other hand, the same buyer sustainability team is pushing them to innovate and do better and, you know, be more proactive. So there are these competing forces in the industry, but the reason why suppliers need to take more leadership is something we've realized that we're aware of all the challenges. We're on the ground. Uh, The labor force is ours and also the resources being consumed are most the most level of consumption is is in the supply chain so if the incentives are stacked in suppliers favors supplier leadership and suppliers being more proactive could be more frequent and could be seen more frequently i just felt that what you described is very accurate because this is where everything is happening that's why it makes sense the suppliers take uh, take the ownership and take the leadership i find myself quoting the the report that came out by McKinsey, I think back in August 2019, often on this show, the report Fashion on Climate, which kind of there's this pie chart in that report, which it's talking about carbon emissions and shows where exactly the carbon emissions within the fashion industry are, are coming from. And it's like 60% of it is coming up from upstream activities. So, you know, the supply chain, like you say, Glory. And um, and then in the report, they go on to articulate that, you know, if the fashion industry wants to change its trajectory in terms of emissions, they see that change also really as being driven by changes and innovations within the supply chain in production. Yeah. And then they go on to list like all these different things that they think would support that, you know, various investments in different types of machinery and equipment and technology, etc. And one of the questions that I was left with when I was reading that report was like, okay, but why would these manufacturers actually invest in those things? On the one hand, there's the issue of capital and access to cash. On the other hand, also, like you could invest upfront in an expensive piece of machinery, but if the money's not there for you to then make back your investment because the prices for the material are so low or whatever it might be, that's another challenge. So I'm curious, like within the Shahi journey, 
you, you know, you've described to us in the past that you've tried to shift away from buyer-led sustainability initiatives and to start to take more of an ownership or a leadership role in these initiatives. And how exactly you've gone, gone about that. And when you hear my sort of thought as I'm reading this report, like, you know, how have you addressed those kinds of questions or concerns within, within Shahi? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And that is what I found in my research that there's still that feeling that there's no business case for making these investments or taking on that work. Because, for example, one of the interviewees said that, okay, I'll invest in a recycling technology, I'll do it. But what's the guarantee that when a new technology comes up, the buyer won't shift uh, to some other supplier that's now able to make that recycled yarn much cheaper? There's no guarantees. um, There's no risk sharing at this point. So it's very difficult for me to um, make these decisions. Um, But when it comes to Shahi, I think um, over time, we kind of realize, especially in the worker well-being space, that with so many factories... Um, and each factory producing for multiple buyers, there was a lot of duplication of projects. So each buyer had their CSR goal of, let's say, running a soft skills training program. And each of them was launching these training programs in our factory. So while in the beginning, it was great that we were learning and doing these new programs, after some time, it was like kind of like program fatigue, similar to audit fatigue. And that kind of... I'll let Anand talk a bit more about that, but that was kind of the starting point of thinking about how, A, we don't know which of these programs actually makes an impact, and B, our teams are duplicating their efforts running so many programs. So can we create programs that we know are impactful, that are built from the ground up, um, and are run across Shahi as a standard program rather than you know running multiple programs with multiple buyers? Yeah, just to expand on that a bit, I think, um, you know, I'm sure you both are pretty aware of this. And I imagine a lot of your listeners probably understand this as well. But there has been this shift that brands have had from moving towards away from traditional compliance, more towards, you know, worker well-being and programs in the factory. And while I think that is the right approach uh, for for, for us at Shahi, you know, we work with over 50 brands. We have multiple requests to run these sort of CSR programs. And while that's great, um, I think at times, it, you know, we noticed that we were getting overburdened, um, you know, with these requests. And some of them were quite similar. Uh, that made it challenging for us in terms of resources. So uh, definitely a lot of these programs did have impact and were adding a lot of value, but we weren't we didn't have systems in place to measure the impact and know which ones are truly the ones that are most successful and should be continued to scale up. Um, and so that was kind of the context, you know, around 2013 that was, that became apparent to us. And then at the same time, um, I guess, you know, I didn't mention this in the introduction, but the other half of my sort of, uh, career is spent on good business lab, which is, a labor innovation uh, startup in general, what we're trying to do is is take a, comp- a topic that's as complex as research and really make it accessible for everybody. So, and yeah, really be able to take research insights and turn them into, you know, um, ideas that people can action. And I'm one of the co-founders along with 
two other co-founders who are both um, researchers and academics. Um, and they had, you know, before we had started this this company, they had visited Shahi in 2013. They were really curious uh, as to what Shahi's motivation was to scale up a program like Pace. We were running Gap Inc.'s Pace program since 2007. Um, they actually, you know, we co-created it with them to some extent, and we were the first company to kind of uh, pilot this program and continue to, you know, build on it. So it's 2013, you know, we've taken it from just an idea to actually having trained over 10,000 women in the program. So the pretty decent scale. And, you know, at that point, um, the other two co-founders, uh, Uch, and one of them is also named Ananth. So um, <laughs> they they were both asking this question, like, what's, you know, what's the motivation for Shahi? What's in it for a company like Shahi uh, to do a program like this? And the theory, the hypothesis was that there must be some benefit the firm is gaining aside from, you know, the social impact this program has. So they wanted to run a study. Um, you know, uh, they wanted to do a randomized control trial evaluation, which you could say is kind of the um, equivalent to a clinical trial in a pharmaceutical industry, except applied to this sort of social setting where we tested the impacts of, of PACE. And so we, you know, we got GAP on board in the sense that let them know we wanted to do this. Um, they had external funding from a, a UK aid agency. Um, I believe it was DFID, which is like the UK version of USAID. And they ran this study independently to assess PACE and found, you know, we all thought that PACE is having some, you know, impacts on the business. It's helping Shahi in some way. But when we saw that the results were uh, so impactful, it kind of blew us away. We essentially were able to quantify the impacts in two key areas, attendance and productivity. And um, when we turned that into an ROI figure based on the cost of running pace, uh, we recognized that the program had over 250% ROI, which, I mean, any program that has that, that much return whether it's a business program or anything else is something that a factory would want to scale up. So I think the takeaway from all of that was just that, you know, there is really great work happening. And when it's created in a way that, um, you know, is uh, aligned with the factory and, you know, the HR teams and so on, it can be highly impactful. And um, those are the programs that firms should continue to invest in. What really strikes me about what you're saying is that ultimately these innovations that you're talking about and these investments that you're talking about have to do with people. And it it reminds me of this article I read. um, uh, It was an interview with Christian Smith, who's the policy lead at Fairware Foundation. And it was an interview with him published, I think, in June. We'll, We'll put the link in the show notes. And the opening question in this interview was, why do brands favor conversations on environmental sustainability over social sustainability? And his answer, you know, basically speaks to how the social sustainability space is difficult. And at the end of the day, the solutions that make the most impact for workers may not be the most palatable for brands or for 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 companies full stop. 
you know, whether brand or supplier. Oh, I was just thinking it's maybe also because impact on uh, on people uh, is hard to measure. The impact on environment is much easier to measure. Again, to paint a picture for everyone listening, when you're in a garment factory, you have different people doing different operations, and their their assignments, their tasks are more easily easily measurable than most other jobs. So if the four of us are in an assembly line, we all have different operations. We each have a target, and let's say it's a hundred pieces per hour. Maybe it wouldn't be that high, but let's say it's ten pieces per hour, <laughs> or, uh, or whatever. Well, maybe you're yeah, or... <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're able to do nine instead of ten. Then our efficiency is ninety percent. So, due to this kind of、uh, production setup, you have a pretty interesting way to track productivity at an individual level. That in corporate jobs and many other jobs, you really can't say. So it becomes the perfect testing ground for a lot of interesting ideas. And then at the same time, everyone understands the value of kind of investing in your workforce. I mean, when you look at you know highly paid workers, whether they're at Google or other tech firms or wherever they may be, you know, you look at the benefits that their businesses give them,、um, you know, all sorts of different things. And then you think that you know, although they're not studying this, they they understand that providing these benefits has its business, you know. Uh, impacts, but then for low wage workers, the same could be true. That's where research can help you kind of figure that out. So we do put in a lot of effort in how we create these programs. So, for example, if we want to create a like a SMS technology that allows workers to message management or set up sanitary napkin dispensers in toilets, which is not common in garment factories. We don't just go and do that. We invest a lot of time in doing qualitative research, whether it's focus group discussions or one-on-one interviews, and it's all kind of based on, you know, qualitative、uh, research, which I, I guess we can do at Shahi because there is a hundred and twenty thousand workers, and you can do a lot of research and experimentation. But that that is why. Some of these programs are also as effective as they are because a lot of effort goes into designing them and talking to the people who are going to use that service or use or you know benefit from that program, which is sometimes missing from a lot of programs that may be coming top down. Which speaks in many ways to where we kind of entered the conversation when I asked you, well, why why suppliers? You know, why should suppliers be the ones taking taking this leadership role? And I think everything that you, Gauri and Anand, have just described would just be Very. I mean, if the employees weren't your employees, none of this would have been possible. Yeah, yeah. one way to say it is, you have、uh, a captive workforce. So, so really, <laughs> like if you think about、yeah. it, like let's say an NGO wanted to provide a service or you know、um, some kind of、uh, goods to a group of people, they have to mobilize this this group, and or at least find a way to reach them. Whereas at a factory, because of the nature of employment, every day you have you know however many people showing up to your factory. And on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode. But don't forget to tune in for part two of the conversation, which we've also released today. And in that episode, we turn to Shahi's relationship with its raw material suppliers, primarily cotton farmers, and we chat about why and how Shahi is supporting Indian cotton growers to improve their yield and quality. 
Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.